This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello! Welcome to the Wax Pack Setback episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It's been a busy week this week, and so I... Felix Salmon of Axios, will help talk you through it along with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello, hello. And Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And we, yeah, we're going to talk about the setback that Dwack had. All credit to Emily Peck for that title. We are going to talk about The Wing, which shut down. We are going to talk about, in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about Citibank versus Revlon and reversibility of payments. It's a fun, nerdy little Slate Plus but I have to say, we have to lead with the UK because there was news out of the UK this week. So obviously, we're going to talk about the big news out of the UK this week, which is the cap on gas prices and other stuff. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so we're going to start with Liz Truss and Liz Windsor, one of whom is still alive. Emily, you were saying earlier to me that you have to be careful you have to watch your words on this here podcast (sighs) because people get very upset and by people you mean americans you don't mean the brits who do this weird thing where they have like weird national morning when royals die we kind of understand that as part of what it is to be british but even the americans are upset about this even the americans a child that i'm familiar with was like, this is very sad. All my friends are very sad. I mean... Wait, the Zoomers are sad? Yeah. Wow. I'm getting text messages from journalist friends who are like, oh, it's so sad. One of our colleagues sent me a DM saying, I'm so sad. I don't want to be insensitive to anyone's feelings. So... it's been hard for me and my family. I need to I'm ask. In a totally different social circle, you guys. Because I'm not getting any of these DMs about. So, so you're no sad. no one is telling you that they're sad. No one. And presumably, Elizabeth, <laughs> I'm just going to go out on the limb here and say wow. you're not particularly sad. I'm not that sad. No. Okay, so I'm not going to ask you, but Emily, can you explain this yes. to me? I mean, there was a certain corner of like Black Twitter and Irish Twitter and that kind of stuff who was definitely not sad. But in general, I think you're right. My mother-in-law was sad. Lots of Americans were sad. The White House flag flew at half-staff. And this is the one that really got me. They had a moment of silence for the Queen at the, an NFL game. What like The Apple.com homepage, even as we're recording this on Friday, which is the big day of the first day for pre-orders for the new iPhone. It's one of the biggest days in Apple's e-commerce year. The entire homepage is just a picture of the queen. So explain that to me. I need you to explain why. You need why. me, an American person. Oh, that makes sense. An American woman explaining to Felix, British guy, about why people are sad in America over the queen. I mean, I don't... She's super famous. Because you have that, like, <laughs> you have that colonial history with the sure. Brits, right? Like, you... you <laughs> Theoretically, you weren't very happy when you were a colony of Britain. Right. But I think people have forgotten about that. And, you know, Britain and the U.S. have this longstanding friendship and and special relationship. All has been forgiven since the War of 1812 when they burned down the White House or whatever. And Queen Elizabeth, you know, she's beloved. I, 
I'm upset you're asking me to explain this because I don't feel those emotions, but she is. I mean, no question. She was the most famous person, famous woman, definitely, in in the world. I think the most famous person in the world. Americans love famous people and they love rich people. She was rich and famous. I will give her that. Yes. We love that. (laughs) <laughs> it's she's a celebrity really more than a head of state or yes. well, no, state she's, figurehead. She's an ultra celebrity because she's a celebrity who never needs to guest edit Vogue or do any press conferences. There was this wonderful factoid about her that she never gave an interview. She never answered questions. She basically went through her entire life without ever answering a single question in public. Well, then that allows her to be a kind of Rorschach test for people. They can project onto her whatever they want. Exactly. And there's no one else in the world who's like that. There's no one else in the world who has no public opinions on anything, who just sits there as a figurehead on banknotes and stamps and everywhere else and just is kind of ubiquitous. And one of the things that I was writing about on Axios, I didn't, that the whole thing didn't quite make it into print because we have to be careful about sensitivities but basically i was saying that the uk has had lots of trying times it's going through a very trying time right now it looks like inflation is going to be 13 percent this year they're going into recession this quarter the bank of england reckons they're going to stay in recession through all of next year and the trying times thing britain has seen before the dreadful prime minister thing and we can talk about liz Truss. Britain has seen before. God knows we've had enough dreadful prime ministers in the past few years. But through it all, for the past seven decades, Britain has had this woman who's just kind of stoically been there for, like, in some weird way for everyone. And honestly, I blame her for the bad timing here. She shouldn't be up and dying just when Britain needs her most, because if you think about the weekly audience between the head of state and the prime minister. You would think, like, Liz Truss has no idea what she's doing, but she's going in to have her weekly audience with the queen, and the queen has known 15 prime ministers, and she's seen it all before. And now Liz Truss is going to have her weekly audience with, you know, this bumbling adulterer, Prince Charles, who, yeah, no one's going to be reassured by that. So she's more an institution than a... She was more an institution than a person. She was a symbol and people really clung on to that in a way that I think might be hard for Americans to understand. I don't think we have a symbol like that. We certainly don't have a person like that. Well, it's funny. You used to have a person like that. Not quite as big as that. I remember very vividly, I was reporting an article in Texas once about art stuff. And I was at the home of a big art collector And I had finished up the interview and I'd seen the collection and I called an Uber to come pick me up and take me to wherever I was going next. And the Uber driver drove up the driveway at exactly the same time as Laura Bush was walking up the driveway to sort of pop in and say hi, because that's what they do in the swanky suburbs. And the Uber driver, who was an immigrant, I think from Senegal, was absolutely flawed. And he was like, he got a selfie and he was so impressed. And there was this kind of just aura of presidency around her. This was after she'd left the White House. Like, he just couldn't stop talking about it for the entire Uber ride afterwards. Oh, my God, I met Laura Bush and it was amazing. And it wasn't obviously because of anything that she had done or not done. It was just because she held that symbolic role. And now I really doubt that anyone would ever feel that way around Melania Trump. But there was a time. Do we think Trump 
definitively ruin that? I don't think so. I mean, Trump supporters would feel like that, right? The MAGA peeps would be excited to meet Melania, I would assume, and have that same feeling. It's just not universally held by the rest of America. I'm not even sure that the MAGA peeps are that I don't think they respect the office. I I think they have a little bit of a cult of personality around Trump, but I think they view that as distinct from the presidency. Mm. But wasn't there a cult of personality around Queen Elizabeth? Or she was had no. Well, she had no she personality. Had well, she had she, a kind of nobility, like which is like I guess a form of personality. But yeah, we should talk about the other Liz though, because Liz Truss uh-huh. has inherited this absolutely nightmarish yes. economic situation, and it seems pretty obvious that she's incapable of really getting a grip on it. She has hired Kwasi Kwarteng as her new chancellor, finance minister, and he seems vaguely competent. But he, the first thing he did was fire the permanent secretary to the treasury basically saying, okay, I know better than the civil service. I am really in charge here. And that's bold because he's inherited a clusterfuck. And it was about to be announced. She was, Liz Truss was about to announce a massive subsidy of electricity and energy bills, which could easily reach $200 billion, which is a lot of money for a relatively small country, which will help on the inflation front because it will stop energy prices from going up. But it will definitely not help on the energy. Britain needs to reduce its energy consumption. And if you are subsidizing energy consumption to the tune of $200 billion, then that's not going to help in terms of reducing the amount of energy that people use. What is energy costing people annually right now? I think, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's £3,500 a year is the energy cap. Basically, the the energy companies are allowed to charge whatever they like up to a cap. And then obviously right now... The cap is 2,500 pounds. So yeah, so the new cap is 2,500 pounds a year, which is a big chunk of disposable income, especially for the bottom one or two deciles of the UK population in terms of income. Martin Wolf had a great chart showing that for the bottom decile, energy prices can reach 50% of disposable income. So people care about this, and the energy price cap at £2,500 is going to be very welcome. So that's a nice little bit of popularity. She's buying herself for £200 billion. But yeah, that doesn't really solve anything structural. Right. It is interesting, though, I was thinking this morning, because I don't know if either of you will remember this, but back in December, The Guardian printed this column by an economist from UMass Amherst. Isabella Weber. And in it, she argued that price controls were necessary to tame inflation. And it seemed like every economist in the world, definitely everyone on Twitter, came out and was like, that is the dumbest. Paul Krugman was very rude about it. Paul Krugman was super, super rude about it. But you know who wasn't rude about it? Janet Yellen, because she is the closest thing we have to the Queen. She just sits there in a sort of wise (laughs) way. But yeah, Janet Yellen then came out and basically announced... Price controls. She created this buyer's cartel for oil. And she said, if you guys, everyone who's buying Russian oil just refuse to pay more than X. And it seems Mm -hmm. to have got traction. Yep. And so Yellen's doing that. Liz Truss just announced price controls for energy, essentially, in England. And Paul Krugman wrote a column Friday morning talking about how in wartime, we need to do what? Price controls. Wait, wait. Paul Krugman wrote that? (laughs) I know that Martin Wolf wrote that. 
Yeah, the column came out Friday morning wow. and my colleague Matt Phillips just sent it to me. When Martin Wolf and Paul Cookman are on the price controls page, like, yeah, this is this is definitely price controls are the new black. Price controls are the new black and it's, you know, I guess the war, not so much inflation, you can quibble about which is doing it, has sort of made changed a lot of thinking on the capabilities of the free markets, you know to solve problems. This is a case where the free market cannot solve this problem. Like you don't want the price of everyone's electricity in the UK to go up so high that they have to, I don't know, freeze to death in the winter. Like that would be what the free market would do. And you can't have that. Well, exactly. So I would make two points here. One is that when people are talking about price controls, in all of these cases, we are literally just talking about one thing, which is energy. Yes. No one's, you know, talking about, you know, the good old fashioned Mexican price controls on tortillas, <laughs> which are a thing by the way and when i remember like covering riots in mexico when the government lifted the price of tortillas but so yeah so the first thing we need to say is that all of these price controls are just on energy right it's not on anything else it's not on tortillas but the bigger issue here is that the energy markets are a terrible way to allocate energy to individuals right especially in europe what you wind up with if you use the price mechanism as a rationing mechanism, right? If you have so not enough supply and too much demand, then the standard market solution to that problem is raise the price, and then the people who, who don't want to pay very much just stop buying it, and the people who are willing to pay more will continue to buy it. And that's fine for Lamborghinis, right? It is not fine for energy, because the last thing you want in a cold country like the UK is for the poor people to just simply not be able to afford to heat their homes while the blithe rich heat their castles in Scotland mm -hmm. without any care because it's such a small amount of their disposable income, right? It's just a terrible allocation mechanism. The prices work to allocate scarce commodities most of the time, but in this case, they really don't, and especially not in the case of natural gas in Europe, where we've seen the markets just be all over the place in a way that there's just no real price discovery even. What do you mean? No one really trusts the... I mean, our colleague Matt Phillips has been running the chart of European gas prices more or less daily for the past month. You know, they've been just going up and everyone's like, oh my God, they're so high. But that really tells you more about the sort of narrow fact of what is what are gas futures trading for on European exchanges, then it tells you about, you know, the price of heating a home, which is not the same thing. You buy your gas from utilities. You don't buy your gas on the open market. And those two prices have never been further apart. Right. I think about that when I get my oil bill and then I look at oil futures prices dropping and I'm like, well, what about my bill? <laughs> are there any uh, comparable commodities Water. that behave the same way? Like water is always subsidized. Nearly all, no, there are very few like profitable water companies. They always have like implicit or explicit subsidies. And again, you don't want to sort of when you have a water shortage, you don't want to just say, "Well, if you can't afford it, don't buy it. Just let the rich people pay through the nose for it, and that will solve the problem." It, there are certain things where you want to make sure that everyone has access. To That's it. interesting that we've decided. I mean, education is a really good yeah. one, right? We talked all, last week about education. And it, we've decided, like, at energy, we will take out of the free market or monkey with it, price control it, water, education a little bit, 
but not really in the U.S. anyway, healthcare. In the U.S., education is free for everyone. And in most developed countries, in nearly all developed countries, That's education true, for everyone. There is a political well, movement here not in, really. in public schools, so it's not... No, but know. it is, for to a first approximation, nearly everyone in America has the ability to send their kid to school for free. For now. <laughs> sort of. I mean, we don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but to get the best public education you have to spend on property taxes in the U.S., blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and then, yeah, absolutely, there are always ways yeah. to spend more for better, yes. right? That's that's kind of okay. Like, the public policy part of this is to make sure that everyone has access to energy, water, education. doesn't necessarily mean they have access to the most or the best, right. but they have some kind of access. So the problem, to go back to energy, the problem with the subsidy and the energy cap that Liz Truss has put in place is that it's not going to do anything to tamp down demand and there isn't enough supply of energy still, right? Like Exactly. Yeah, that's the problem. So what so what's going to happen? I mean, us quasi quoting. I can guarantee you that Liz Truss isn't going to tell you. I mean, it, there was a wonderful moment at PMQ's one of the first prime minister's question time where Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, was just quoting Kwasi Kwarteng about all of these things, like from just a few months ago, where he was like, you have said that you can't reduce the price of the natural gas on global markets by pumping oil, by pumping more gas from the North Sea and all of this kind of stuff. And now he seems to be backtracking on that because he needs to align himself with the populist positions of Liz Truss, who has no you know, economic intuition really, in terms of how things work. Kuateng is like an economic historian. He understands these things. But trust is not. And so she's more Trumpy in that way. She just kind of says whatever she thinks the people want to believe and has this kind of magical thinking that if she says it, she will make it so. And it isn't going to work like that. I will mention one last thing, though, which is the Bank of England was meant to raise rates this week and didn't because the Queen died. Okay. They've pushed off their next rate hike decision for a week because they're too busy mourning. Respectfully, people are very upset, so we are respectful of this decision, right, Felix? <laughs> I I can accept it, I suppose. I'm too much of a Republican, I have it. to say. All right, Elizabeth, we have the headline. You have to fill in the blanks. Yes. Dwack's back attack. <laughs> Dwack's back setback. Oh, Dwack's back setback. There you go. <laughs> yeah, this is credit to Emily. We did not come up with this. <laughs> so Digital World Acquisition Corp., the company that was supposed to merge with Donald Trump's social network, Truth Social, has decided that they're going to adjourn their shareholder meeting for over a month because they're afraid that if they can't delay this merger for a year, they're going to have to liquidate the company, which has a lot of cash right now. And unfortunately, Truth Social does not have a lot of users so it supposedly has around 513,000 active users. Somehow Donald Trump has 3.9 million followers. But this is, I mean, tiny compared to every other social network that we all use. But this is really, I mean, the story of this week, I have to say, has basically nothing to do with Truth Social. It really has just to do with DWAC, the SPAC that was meant to buy Truth Social. <laughs> And the SEC has been looking at DWAC and looking at Truth Social and going like, you guys are just a shit show and you don't have your shit together and there's all manner of weird things that you're violating. And so to no one's great surprise, they didn't approve the merger. They have not yet approved the merger. DWAC is hoping 
that if they just delay this for a year, somehow they can wave a magic wand and get the SEC to approve the merger. I am extremely skeptical about this, especially the idea that Gary Gensler will allow Dwack to buy Truth Social and take it, make it into a public company just seems highly unlikely to me. But this is the one hope that they have been clinging to, is that like maybe if you, we just go back to the SEC with revisions and talk to them nicely and blah, 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 we can get them to approve it. The problem is that under the bylaws of the SPAC, Dwack had to liquidate itself like yesterday, basically, because it had a certain amount of time to finish the merger and it ran out the clock on that time. And so they then went to their shareholders and said, please, can you give us another year? Can you just basically vote to change the bylaws to extend this for another year? And they needed 65% approval. And as far as I can tell from the reporting, they are nowhere near that. Yeah, and they haven't really articulated to shareholders right. what their plan is if they get the time. Well, they have. They've told shareholders, well, in, in their kind of unique, twacky kind of way, they've said, we are going to use that time to try and get SEC approval to complete the merger, right? What that means in practice, no one knows. So what they've done now is they have spent, the sponsors have spent $2.8 million of their own money, which you're allowed to do to push it off for three months. And they've extended the vote until October the 10th in the hope that somehow... They are, I think they have about 40% of the shareholders voting in favor of extending this, that somehow they will get another 25% and get up to that 65% level, and then they will be able to extend it for a full year, which maybe is enough time in their minds to get the SEC approval. I am just going to come out and say there is no way that between now and October 10, they're going to be able to get from 40% to 65%. And we can talk about why, because it's kind of interesting. Yeah, so that's the interesting part. And I think we talked about this on another episode. But basically, the problem here isn't that shareholders are against this. It's that shareholders don't vote, especially the kind of shareholders who own the DWAC. Can I call it the DWAC? These are you can call <laughs> it the DWAC. Meme retail. We've, al- we've already done the inflation. <laughs> so now we're just going to do the DWAC. These are retail investors who are enthusiastic about being a part of the special free speech movement that is Truth Social and Dwack. They love it, I guess. But yeah. yeah, you wouldn't own that stock if you weren't right. into the thesis. Right, but the problem is, despite their love and enthusiasm, they don't vote. It's a very, very U.S. kind of problem in, in its own way, right? People always complain no one votes. I think it's kind <laughs> of universal. I don't think there's an, a stock market in the world where individual investors vote their shares. But this is now like but the problem. Write in to SlateMoney at Slate.com if you know of one that where it does. But I was looking at the statistics and institutional investors vote their shares roughly 83% of the time. Individual investors vote their shares roughly 30% of the time. And so if you have a shareholder base that's overwhelmingly individual investors, you can expect only 30% to vote. And even if literally 100% of the votes come in favor, 30% is never going to be enough. And can you talk about Felix or Elizabeth, like, how do companies, like, reach out to retail investors to get them to vote? Is there, like, a communications problem here? Like, how do they drum up the enthusiasm? 
This is an amazing <laughs> question. And part of the answer is the CEO of Dwack will go on weird like podcasts and radio shows hosted by Canadian evangelicals and be like, can you please vote your shares? And they're trying to reach the Trumpy community because they reckon that's where the Dwack shareholders are. I don't know if that's true or not. There is also a company called Say, S-A-Y Technologies, which was bought last year by Robinhood for $140 million. And this is the problem that Say Technologies was designed to solve, right? Say Technologies, it's like, we are going to bring shareholder communications kicking and screaming into the 21st century. No more of this, like, you will get pieces of paper in the mail and have to open them up and tick boxes and reply in envelopes and understand proxy cards and all of that kind of stuff. We're going to make it all cool and digital and seamless and easy. And it sounds good, but I did some actual reporting on this and I asked say technology is like tell me if you look at the robin hood customers who own dwack how many of them voted and say replied with a very loud no comment yeah i think this is just a financial literacy problem you know people can know just enough to know about the dwack and buy the shares and then just not really understand what that gets them <laughs> Some level. I mean, so, it's also just a pain in the ass. And no one, I mean, quite rightly, no one thinks that voting matters, right? If you have 10 shares of DWAG, your 10 shares are not going to matter that much. So you don't bother voting them. But the problem is if everyone thinks that way, which is basically how it works, then no one winds up voting at all. I think it's rational to not vote as an individual investor because your vote never really matters. It's rational to vote if you're BlackRock, which is why most people end up in some way or another outsourcing their voting to BlackRock. There is no voting, but it's normally done by email, but I think increasingly there are digital ways of doing it. So it's normally done by mail, like literally postal mail, but there are increasingly digital ways of doing it too, and those are used more and more. So yeah, that you can vote digitally as well. But like the fact that you're asking the question, right, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that, Emily, you have never once voted a stock in your life. No, I throw out like 95% of any mail that would look like it was a voting. I yes. certainly haven't, Elizabeth, have you? I have twice. You have twice? <gasps> wow. <laughs> Tell us everything. Yeah. A long time ago, it was when I was a, an equity analyst, so I sort of knew to do that. But this was during the snail mail era where you really did fill out a bunch of paperwork and then mail it back. Did you feel virtuous in the same way that I feel virtuous when I vote in an actual election? You do, kind of. What happens is you, you feel a little bit more invested in <laughs> the company, its performance, and it's completely nonsense. Did you follow <laughs> management's recommendations on how to vote? I don't remember. The other reason why I'm entirely convinced that Dwack is not going to get its 65% quorum is that if you bought your DWAC shares any time between August the 12th and now, you can't vote. You're not eligible to vote. The only people who are eligible to vote are the people who held shares on August the 12th. And DWAC is a very highly traded company. The total volume since August the 12th has been like pretty much the entire free float of the company. So the people who held the shares on August the 12th, who are eligible to vote, might no longer be the people who own the sh shares right now, which means that even if they want to vote, they can't. And then the people who do hold the shares and want to vote, it's really hard. You want to vote to happen mm. as close to the date as possible. And the longer you get away from it, the harder it becomes. It's kind of crazy to me that Truth Social is trying to go public so soon. I mean, they only just launched in February. Like, what's the hurry? It took Facebook a decade, right? 
Well, I mean, it's lots they're of money, serious. right? They're not serious. <laughs> well, they are. Well, they are serious. Like it's it's a three billion dollars for Donald Trump and his cronies, right? It, they get all of the money in the pipe and all of the money in the spec. And so long as the share price is above ten dollars, which it is, all of that money will go into Truth Social, and it's basically free money. It's at a crazy high valuation. So it's not clear how Donald Trump can get that much money that easily any other way. So that makes sense to me. We are now in the mm -hmm. SPAC winter. No one's really SPACing anymore. And so it's much harder to do it. But back at the time when this deal was signed, everyone was SPACing and it made perfect sense. So what happens if they liquidate? What happens to Truth Social? So if Dwack liquidates at $10 a share, then everyone who has bought Dwack shares basically loses money. Dwack shares are still trading at 25 which is batshit to me. Like, I do not understand that at all, because it seems obvious to me that this company is going to liquidate at 10. But if Dwack liquidates at 10, then Truth Social just keeps on being Truth Social. And Donald Trump has already put out a truth saying, well, I don't even need the twack, Dwack, I'm rich, we can just do this as a private company, which is true. If he's willing to subsidize the company and subsidize its losses, then yeah, it can continue. But he needs to find some, he needs to find someone who is willing to do that. Yeah, he doesn't even pay his contractors. I'm not, you know, I think if this falls apart, Truth Social does too. Maybe Truth Social's continued existence is entirely contingent upon being acquired by Digital World Acquisition Corp. <laughs> Meme stocked into success. I really don't think that's going to happen. And I really don't think they can go public any other way either. It's not like they can yeah, IPO. Talking about private companies in trouble, Emily, yes. what happened to the wing? Do you remember the wing? <sighs> yes. I do. The, Did you ever go to the wing? I haven't, but I can tell you what's going on. Okay, first of all, what is the wing? The wing was an exclusive club for women that opened in 2016 at a peak girl boss moment in time. But... Can we, by, by the way, just very quickly shout out Paris Hilton, whose tweet about the queen was absolutely awesome. And she's, the queen was the original girl boss. I mean, Queen Elizabeth I was the original girl boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, the first Queen Elizabeth was a girl boss. But yeah, so th this is a club for girl bosses? Well, yes. Yes, it was, Felix. It was a club for girl bosses called The Wing, <laughs> founded, as I said, at peak girl boss time in 2016 by Audrey Gelman, founded in New York, and now it has been grounded. Founded to grounded. You're good <laughs> on, like, the rhymes this week. It's rhyme time for me. So, yes. So it, it announced that it was closing late last month because basically it's like the pandemic. No one wanted to go to a female co-working space and be a girl boss in the, the pandemic. And when they reopened, there just wasn't the interest that there had been before to sustain it. And the shine was off the wing even before the pandemic in, in 2020. There was, you know, reporting of all kinds of drama and turmoil there. It was supposed to be like a, like a feminine pit stop, a woman's utopia, but it had a lot of the same problems you see anywhere. It was a lot of wealthier white women were joining and a lot of, you know, women of color working there for like $16 an hour complaining about being mistreated. And then ultimately, during the summer of 2020, when there were a lot of protests, Audrey Gelman, who founded it and had got tons of attention, she stepped down as CEO. She, This is my favorite part, I think. She now owns a cottage core themed antique and home goods shop in, of course, Brooklyn. Cottage core. We've we got to love this. Okay, so here's my take on the wing, which 
to be clear, I never stepped into. Elizabeth, you visited the wing more than once. Yeah, I've been there a few times. The branch in Flatiron was their sort of original headquarter branch. And it was very... Uh, pink? Pink, yes. Pink. And that, yes. was there like lots of millennial cursive? Yes. Yes, it was kind of a, the atmosphere was very live, laugh, love, but high end. So they had an epic powder room stocked with Chanel cosmetics and stuff like that. Chanel, wow. Because this news doesn't entirely coincide with, but it comes pretty close to the news from a few months ago. The chief, which is the actual Girl Boss Club, raised $100 million in the Series B at a $1.1 billion valuation. It's not that girl boss clubs in principle are out of favor. I feel like girl boss clubs are in favor if they're serious in a way that the wing maybe wasn't. Well, I think part of it, so IWG, which is like an office space company, and they own a, ma- owns, own a majority stake in the wing. In one of the pieces I read, they basically said, look, people don't want to go to downtown co-working spaces anymore. They do want to go to suburban co-working spaces. I think it is a pandemic remote work story. So how do you explain the chief valuation? Well, chief is virtual. I don't think it, it's not about spaces, is it? They have spaces. They have space. They have multiple spaces in, in, in multiple cities. I don't. Then I don't know quite how to explain it. Yeah, some of it too is that the wing had this kind of cool girl aura and was always packed every time I went in there. Like if you're like for me, that's an impossible space to work in when people are elbow to elbow in an open plan office. But mm-hmm. it was people would go there for networking and to hang out. I don't think very much work actually got done there. Yeah, I felt it was just a kind of pinker Soho house, really. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, Soho House is still going, which astonishes me every day. I mean, I just feel like it was a trendy space. And it was a trend whose trendiness has wound down. Like, just just saying girl boss now, you don't say it in a serious way. You say it ironically or to be funny. And I mean, I guess after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, the wing was kind of a resurgent. I saw some quotes about it being like a refuge in a in a trying time or something. But I don't know. Like six years later, it just seems it seems like that kind of corporate feminism as marketing. People have just moved on from it. My f- take on this is that if you want to create a members club you need to work harder on making it aspirational. And the wing, frankly, accepted too many members and didn't turn enough of them away. And kind of the way that Soho House is still a thing is by still being weirdly hard to get into. Or like, you can just do that by price. If you force people to pay $10,000 or $20,000, whatever, to join the club, then people feel like this is something exclusive and important and valuable just because it's so bloody expensive. That sounds right. Um, I think for them, yeah. though, that... that cut against their supposed philosophy, which is that they were at least on the surface pretending to be inclusive. Right, exactly. And then, but yeah, that's the thing. I just can't, I can't think of an inclusive club that has ever remained trendy. Like anything cool is always exclusive in some way. Yeah, what you're touching on is that the real appeal for it was that it was a social club. You know, Mm -hmm. nobody really thought of it as a serious co-working space. Right. That's true. You can't be an exclusive club if you're not an exclusive club. <laughs> and you got to exclude years. people. You can't yeah. be exclusive if you don't exclude anyone. We're Come on, people. Like, if you're get your etymology wait, down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? I have a number. It's 250,000. 
That is the number of dollars tourists paid to take a submersible down 2.4 miles to see the wreckage of the, any guesses? Titanic? Yes. They paid a quarter of a million dollars to go down and see the Titanic. And to me, this is a sign of how boring it must be to be rich that you spend a quarter million dollars to take an eight-hour boat trip to see essentially a shipwreck. And that is my opinion, and I am sticking to it. Though I did. <laughs> I mean, we know you video. don't like. We know you don't like yachts that float <laughs> on the surface of the sea. So it's hard to imagine why you'd want why you'd like we're, we're yachts that just go down. As a matter of course, <laughs> we're like an anti-marine podcast right here. <laughs> but I did, Felix. Maybe this will interest you. The company that's doing this Ocean Gate expeditions—they're taking all this like fancy 8K video footage of the Titanic and considering doing an immersive experience like how they did with um, oh, Van Gogh. <laughs> God. It's going to be like the Van Gogh experience but <laughs> yes, for the Titanic. that might be on the horizon wow. for us. So you save your $250,000 for that. I'm trying to work out how much money you would need to pay me <laughs> to go through the Titanic immersive experience and it's a lot. We should record an episode of Slate Money from the Titanic immersive experience if it ever occurs. That would be so fun. <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to ignore that and say that my number is 3,284, which is a universal basic income number. Do you know what I'm talking about, Emily? No. You know what I'm talking about, Elizabeth? No. 3,284 is the number of dollars that every single resident of Alaska is being paid this year out of the permanent fund. Excellent. Alaska has, as we all know, its own little UBI thing going on. Every year it pays oil dividends to its residents. And this year, thanks to healthy oil markets and lots of drilling, that number is the largest ever. $3,284 for every Alaskan. They're going to go out and spend it all this winter. And it's good for the economy. And yeah, if you like universal like basic income then Alaska is one of the places that everyone points to as a place where it works very well. Isn't that going to be bad for inflation in Alaska and, and everywhere? Yeah, yeah, it's going to, it's going to hit in the inflation. We have to worry about the inflation. to think about the inflation. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the governor of Alaska does not is not, is not worrying about the inflationary consequences of the permanent fund dividend. Okay. Elizabeth, what's your number? My number is 59, and it's a percentage so I, I learned today that men eat 59% more meat in France than women do. <gasps> I saw and that. this came up because <laughs> <laughs> there was a green politician who suggested that if everyone reduced their meat consumption, that this would help the environment because 14% of all greenhouse gases come from livestock. And this became a war of the sexes kind of thing mm -hmm. because it was implied that men eat more meat because it's a virility issue or they believe it makes them seem more virile. Yeah, the politician who said, suggested people stop eating meat said something like, we have to stop tying masculinity to meat or something, right? And then said people should wear bell peppers, which, yeah. There was a Communist Party official who said, uh, here's the quote, meat consumption is a function of what you have in your wallet, not your underpants. So. <laughs> I like that quote, and I couldn't agree more. And yeah, I mean, if you look at the carbon emissions in India and China, as those populations start eating more meat, as they get richer, that really hits carbon emissions. And you want to reduce your meat consumption for environmental reasons. And I, yeah, and the fact that 
there's such a big difference between men and women in France is amazing because like don't people normally eat in sort of mixed I think the, the theory was that more women have become vegetarian and vegan for various reasons. Well, maybe France is, is really that country where, you know, you, ha you go out for dinner and the man orders a chicken or something and then the woman just orders a salad because she's French. Yeah, I do the opposite. My husband orders a salad and I order a big steak. <laughs> <laughs> and the waiter's always give us the wrong plate initially. Can someone do some <laughs> homework on this and try and work out what the equivalent number is in the United States if there's a meat gender gap here? <laughs> and if and if you had to guess, I, I have no idea, but Elizabeth, if you had to guess, if it's 59% <laughs> in France, what do you think it is in the U.S.? I think the gap is smaller. It's probably like 20, 25%. Emily? Um, I don't know. I mean, we have the pay gap. Men have more money. Meat costs more money. So it stands to reason we have a similar situation here. Where would you put it if you had to guess? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe men eat 30% more meat than women. How about that? That's my guess based on nothing. No knowledge. All right. We will look it up. If you know the answer, write in slatemoneyatslate.com and we will see who gets closer. I guess I ought to put my own guess in here, right? Get skin in the game, as they call it. I'm just going to go on body weight. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say that if American men are like 180 pounds and American women are maybe 110 pounds, then yeah, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's more like France. I'm going to go, I'm just going to go with the French one, the 59%, that we're not like actually any better than the French. I really don't think American women are 110 pounds on average <laughs> or men are 180. That's wild. That is wildly incorrect. I, yeah, no, I, do I know anything about... <laughs> Like body weight? No, I'm. I'm. I just are you, know that. Are you thinking in stone? Janet Yellen <laughs> is very short. <laughs> I mean, how much can Janet Yellen weigh? She's tiny. <laughs> Wait, whoever wins, I think, has to <laughs> buy everyone else a steak dinner. I don't know. Just, just spitballing a salad. A, sl a, a salad. <laughs> we have a lovely new like Lebanese place opening up in the ground floor of the Slate offices, so we'll all go there for a vegetarian falafel lunch. <laughs> Perfect. On which note, I think that's it for us this week, unless you are a Slate Plus member, in which case we will nerd out about Revlon and Citibank, because we love nerding out about Revlon and Citibank. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Thanks for your emails. Many thanks to Jessamine Molly for producing at Seaplane Armada. And we'll be back next week with even more Slate Money. So, Slate Plus, folks, I have amazing news that after everything we were talking about, how Citibank had completely fucked up with its fat finger payment and its terrible user interface and computers not being designed well, and it had paid half a billion dollars to creditors of Revlon, guess what? Those creditors now need to give it back. There was a three-panel, three-member panel, which overruled the previous ruling, and now Citibank gets its money back in full. What do we make of this, Emily? Here's what I think. I think that the justice system in America only works for big companies, and this ruling is proof. I mean, like, I feel like yes, it was it big sense. companies on both sides. There was no big company was going to well, lose this one. Or 
But this was like the empathetic ruling, right? It was like, okay, well, they made a mistake, but they shouldn't have to suffer for it kind of ruling, which is like what you would hope for in the justice system for everybody, but I think only is the kind of benefit that accrues to deep-pocketed businesses. So that is that is my only take. So you're saying that uh, the American judicial system is good at finding cases with the equities, but only if the lawyers are very yes. expensive. Yes, I only I I truly think that the, in order to to obtain some kind of justice that is empathetic, understanding, all of that, like it, that's for com- that's for companies to get, and it's not typically for individuals unless they're very wealthy. What would you say the empathetic with the equities justice would be in the <laughs> Elon Musk versus Twitter case? I think that it would be with Twitter. Because like the rational, just if you step back, it's just like Elon Musk was insane and like this is crazy. And and obviously he should, if he wants to back out, he should have to pay or he should be forced to go through with it. Like I think like if you just think about it outside of legal argument, it's just like obviously like this guy is bananas. Like this the empathy argument kind of rests on the idea that everyone's acting in good faith, mm-hmm. and empathy is not really a word that I associate with, with Elon. With, 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 but, but going back to Revlon, the like mm-hmm. these, yeah, th- we, we have a bunch of red in tooth and claw hedge fund managers, and Citibank is not exactly the most empathetic defendant here. Do you agree with Emily, Elizabeth? Do you think that this overruling of the lower judge was a good thing? I think it, it, that's a piece of it. I think it's also that people are terrified to let com- big companies make really big mistakes. I think they're afraid of ripple effects and precedents and things like that. What, what would the ripple effect precedent be in this case? I think that if it happens to a smaller company, there there's some kind of baked in, not incentive to make mistakes, but not enough blowback if you do. So wait, that that would imply that this was the wrong decision because you need Citibank to actually hurt if it makes a mistake. Yeah, I guess you're right. I was thinking about Elon. Or <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of criticism of Zelle a while back because people were making mistakes with their Zelle accounts and paying the wrong people. And then after they made the mistake, they couldn't get their money back, which like seems wrong. <laughs> so... And now, Zell, if you do make a mistake, I recently emailed the wrong email address with money, and I got my money back. It was like, no problem. I feel like this is the big corporate version of that. Is that, am I out on a wild limb now? No, I think that is definitely one of the features of Zell, <laughs> in contradistinction to all of the wild-eyed, laser-eyed tech bros who want everyone to transact in crypto mm-hmm. because crypto is not reversible and dollars generally especially if you use bank owned products like Zelle are reversible. Yeah, I think reversible is good. I so beyond the justice system, you know, favoring rich deep pocketed companies, I think this outcome is correct that we need to have a reversible system sometimes. We need to allow for the fact that mistakes are going to happen, although companies shouldn't make them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we agree. Amazing. Bye, say plus. <laughs>